So we start today with a conversation with Jiro Decker, founder and CEO of Signavio. Jiro, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, let's get you introduced to our audience. We had a chance to speak recently and do your story for the Entrepreneur Journey series on our blog. So um, tell us, how did you get Signavio off the ground? What is the Genesis story? Sure. Yeah, so I'm one out of four founders, basically four friends from university, and we started nine years ago. Um, now growing the company to close to 300 people, so this will be a major milestone for us um, that will be reached pretty soon. Um, how it all started was we met in university, actually. I was still working there, um, doing a PhD, and um, I had the luck to work with um, very uh, motivated, very talented um, students. And we worked basically, our goal was to build the first web-based drawing tool. Um, so back in the days, there was something called Writely, which was the first Office or the first Microsoft Word on the web, if you will, um, but there was not the PowerPoint uh, on the web, and we, this was our technical ambition to build the first drawing tool on the web. Um, and this was really painful. This was Chrome didn't exist. It was Firefox version one. Internet Explorer didn't support any standards. So from a technical perspective, quite challenging. And as we were active in the field of business process optimization, we dealt a lot with flowcharts. So basically, instead of just drawing anything, um, we focused on building the best and the most usable web-based flowchart editor um, back in the days as an open source project, and we put it out to the web. And then we got lucky that people picked it up um, in blogs, uh, wrote about us, you know, tens of thousands of people clicked the links, crashed our systems, um, you know, the, the, the story that everybody's hoping for who builds technology. And, and it took us a while actually to realize what problem we were solving um, because it was really love for technology in, in the beginning. And, and, you know, only over time we realized that we actually had solved the problem of collaboration when it comes to talking about uh, business processes, which seemed to be unsolved by the legacy products that were on the market, which were more tuned for specialists. And, and our system, also for lack of functionality, was, was pretty much simplistic and therefore tuned for the masses. So, um, so this got us off the ground that people got interested in, in what we did, signed up for the, for, the, you know, for the free web service that we offered, um, and asked us for features, asked us for you know, more reliability. And this is when the idea came up, hey, let's do something with it. Maybe there's a commercial, maybe there's a commercial model to be found. So we were not starting with you know, the goal to create a company. Um, we actually started with the love for the technology and only found out later that this might be a good uh, starting point for a company. And um, where were you doing all this, and what was the ecosystem around you? What were you, you know, what was filtering into your life from the surrounding in terms of startups and building companies and all that? What, what was the input? Yeah. I mean, I was I was a computer scientist guy, right? I was a programmer, so I was deeply, you know, interested in the technical stuff. Less of, less interested in the on the business side. But I do come from a family of entrepreneurs, um, so for example, my uncle, he was one of the pioneers of solar panels um, and building one of the first companies on solar panels. So I, I knew that story of you know, technology lovers or engineers um, having turned into entrepreneurs, so I could see that firsthand in the family. Um, so this was a big inspiration. There was nobody doing software, so everybody thought, you know, 
uh, Giro is doing this video game thing, right? So software is not real. <laughs> if you can't touch it, then it's not real. So, uh, so in terms of entrepreneurship, it was a little bit more old school. Everybody was more into mechanical engineering and, and things that you produce, right? So uh, factories and, and, and all of that. Um, and which, so, university, um, which university were you at? So I was at um, the university is called Hasso Plattner Institute, named after the founder of SAP, Hasso Plattner, who's still um, he's still on the on 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 the um, uh, supervisory board of SAP, very active, very passionate about software, and he was also very active at the university, a very likable person, very smart, um, ben, you know, a great engineer on the one hand, but also passionate about the problems that companies have out there. So he was always to me the role model. Um, for what it means to be an entrepreneur, right? So passionate about the Did product. Did you ever get to hand. interact with him? No, of course, yeah, regularly. Because he was he was giving lectures and he's very approachable. Okay. So you could so you can ask him, hey, Hasso, what's your plan for the evening? We cook uh, chili con carne in our student dorm. Do you want to come over? And he would say, yeah, I have to call you know, a person to pick up my car because I guess I won't be driving afterwards anymore. Uh, but let me handle that, and I'll come over. So um, no, he's, very, he's, he's a very approachable, very down-to-earth person. So everybody who has the chance to meet him, he's, he's, he's really a great inspiration and, 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 and a mere mortal like every one of us. So that, uh, having a person like that as a role model must have in influenced your early journey immensely. Well, Even if that was not direct, it was just having him there must have been a huge inspiration. Yeah. I mean, you see, it's, it's just a normal person, right? He's breathing the same yeah. air, he's drinking the same beer, he's, he's eating the same food, right? So uh, it, it's not, um, you know, if you only see them on TV or in publications, they might seem like superstars and, and you know, right. from a different world, but that's not the case, right? So most entrepreneurs that I have run to over the years are very, are very humble, are very, you know, just, just regular people who happen to be passionate about what they do and, and pursued. Uh, what they thought is, is the right thing to do. All right. So let's uh, talk a bit about, uh, you know, the getting to the commercialization of your uh, open source project. So you were getting lots of people downloading your project and, and so on and so forth, but how did you actually get to commercialization, get to your first customer? How did that happen? Yeah. So our initial idea, our naive thought was that we simply find a sponsor for our open source project and we continue as an open source project because companies like Red Hat and others, they were downloading our stuff and actually integrating it into their product so it had real commercial application and people were interested yeah. in the technology. So we approached them and asked them, so how about you give us a couple of thousand euros uh, per month and we can happily continue developing the project and, and you can influence the roadmap and all of that, right? So similar to what Mozilla does with sponsors like Google, right? It's an open source foundation, not for profit, um, and it's simply there, um, you know, financed by a set of sponsors to keep the open source project alive. Um, but uh, everybody, everybody declined our kind offer <laughs> and said, you can, you can become an employee, right? You can, you can, you can get a Red Hat badge and, and work for us. And you can even work on the project, but we don't do sponsorships, right? And uh, so we said, damn, you know, that idea didn't work. Um, so we figured that it's probably a lot um, easier, nicer um, 
a lot smarter to go to the end users directly, right? Um, because if you if you go for that model, it's basically an OEM uh, technology integration type business model, which is always bad because you're always, you know, very much down in the in the value chain, and 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 you have too many indirection levels to the end customer. So. You know, we focus a lot more on, on the end user organizations and what they would be looking for, what they were lacking in the, in the software that we provided. And the, the choice that we had to make basically back in the days was, well, either we do, uh, you know, a cheap um, sign up for a couple of dollars a month with your credit card, um, you know, individual user type thing, which, is, which just shines through usability, complete self-service, all of that limited in functionality but, you know, mass applicable versus you go down the enterprise route where you say my customer is not an individual but my customer is maybe a large corporation with, with users in it, you know, security concerns, um, integration uh, things, they will, you know, throw a ton of requirements at you. Um, so this was the, the choice that we were um, trying to make, and we actually opted very early to go down the enterprise route. So we would rather work with, with a smaller set of companies, but where we have defined target people, that we can work together on a roadmap for the product, what it needs to do, um, to, to be a value, um, and, and have a clear path, rather than working with an anonymous uh, mass of, of thousands of individual people that you can't, where it's more of a marketing play plus a virality play. Um, and um, we found it, it, it was more suitable for our niche um, for business process management, flowcharting. This is more suited for an enterprise type uh, model. So we started engaging and looking for all of the companies that we had in our, um, um, you know, that we had relationships okay. with that we knew. Um, and we reached out to them, told them about what we were up to, and whether they would be interested in, in, in you know, looking at that, um, endorsing it, you know, helping us build it out. And we got very lucky. Um, we were working with a health insurance company, actually uh, the market-leading health insurance company in Germany, very well-known here um, in Germany, but not anywhere else in the world, very conservative. Um, but we got super lucky that we had a great relationships to the key um, decision uh, makers. They mm -hmm. hated the software that they currently had in place. It was old. It was complex. Um, they hated the sales guys. what was guys. that? What software was that? Say again? What was the software that you replaced there? It was a product by um, Software AG. Um, so uh, back in the days, this was our, our um, you know, our most important competitor. Yeah. Um, basically, okay. the pioneer in our product category. Um, they were they were dominating that space. Um, they were roughly at 100 million in in, in revenues for that particular product um, at that point in time. So they had a they had a they had a good good market penetration. Yeah, a big customer base and um, serving mid-sized and large companies. And we found that with the very large companies, we were simply not ready yet for the first couple of years, uh, but for the mid-sized companies, so between 1,000 and 5,000 or 10,000 people, these, were, these companies were a lot more pragmatic, much less um, enterprisey, much less demanding and all kinds of crazy features. Uh, but a lot more um, pragmatic and, and easy to work with, easier sales cycles. So this was basically the niche or the, the company sizes that we, um, that we aimed at for the first couple of years of the company. 
So, you know, for the audience listening to this, I uh, must point out that if you can find a competitor that is uh, of whatever idea that you're working with, whatever early software that you're working with, if you can find a competitor and if you find their weakness and if you can actually get, go into accounts and displace competitors or a competitor that has a substantial install base out there, that is a very powerful and high-velocity strategy of building a business because, you know, if in this case, if you're talking about software AG, $100 million business, lots of, you know, sizable customers, and if you start getting reference accounts with one or two of this, uh, you know, enterprise customers displacing this particular uh, installed software, you really move through that uh, install base very rapidly because word of mouth spreads and 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 everything becomes a lot easier. Uh, Gero, do you want to comment on that? This is what we thought, <laughs> but the reality turned out to be slightly different for us. So for the first customer, this was true, um, and from a credibility point of view, this was magic, right? Because everybody knew they were a reference customer of, of Software AG before, and, and they were not one of those risk takers, right? So they would only buy software if it's really substantial and working for them. So as a reference, this was fantastic, and we thought, well, let's just replicate it because Software AG has thousands of customers. Why not just go after all of them and, and replace one after the other? But we found this was, this was super hard for us because the switching cost um, was simply too high. Um, it was too much of a pain for, for customers to go away. And um, so we found success much more with the more greenfield type accounts. So organizations who were moving up the ladder in their maturity who had used maybe disparate solutions before or very lightweight um, solutions before and were buying a real product um, for, in our case, business process management for the first time, that these were the much faster deals um, and the ones where we had much more predictable success. <clears throat> so over the years, um, switch out deals, um, yes, if they happened, they turned out to be the, the largest deals that we did, um, also because they were used to paying, you know, incredible sums of money, um, and you could just say, you know, you get a far better product and, and, you know, at the same or cheaper price, so, you know, it's, you know, go for it, um, but for the mass of the growth and the, the mass growth of the and install the mass that we have today, uh, most has actually been uh, rather green field than, um, than switch outs. Okay. So um, at what point did you hit a million dollar annual revenue? Um, that was probably in 2000, probably three years in or something. Um, three years in. And so all we this were, while you were essentially bootstrapping, right? You didn't say raise any money in that period. Yeah, we didn't raise money for the first six and a half years, so we completely lived off of revenue. In our case, we had still a hybrid model, um, so we were doing subscriptions on the one hand, but we also had customers on the old, um, you know, software purchase plus maintenance model, which from a cash perspective is, of course, um, you know, much better um, for a startup because it gives you this, this immediate cash influx. 
Um, and only over time we switched completely to subscriptions. So now we do 100% subscriptions. So ARR is, is the main metric that we're tracking. Um, but, um, um, you know, it hasn't been always that case, right? In, in the beginning was a lot yeah. more about cash at hand. So this is something that we uh, very aggressively promote as a strategy for, uh, you know, customer finance seed uh, funding, essentially, where you want to get larger check sizes early on. So and there are two ways of doing that. Either you do it like uh, Gary is talking about, where you sell it as a full license software and, um, and get upfront payments early. The other way to do it is actually sell multi-year subscriptions. So let's say you say, sell a three-year subscription deal and get all the money up front. And, and some customers are willing to do that as well. So, you know, it's how you package it and how you sell it. But one, the, the objective is to get a large chunk of cash early on so that you can basically use that as your seed money. And, and that's what we're talking about here as a strategy that is very effective, as very, very effective bootstrapping strategy. So, Giro, one other question on your... Uh, first six years before you raised any financing. At what point, I, I remember in, in your Entrepreneur Journeys interview, you did talk about Software AG being very jealous of you and you were uh, you were sitting next to a guy from Software AG who basically told you that he knows you because you're replacing his uh, customers. <laughs> so at, at what point in your cycle did that start to happen more readily as opposed to being a pain in the ass and start in, in terms of exit barrier. Yeah. So we probably appeared on their radar probably one or one and a half years into the company already. But um, you have to, I mean, you have to remember that the day we started the company, we had already uh, worked on our project for two years, right? So if you yep. count or if you want to compare it to other companies who start at, you know, blank slate, on day one, um, then you would probably have to add that to be to be fair. Um, but so are we, we talking um, six years, including those two years, or six years plus two years? Six years plus two years, right? But the first two years was really non no commercial afterthought. So we took all of the time that we had. So if we had started it as you know with the with the attention to build a company, probably we could have done what we did in the first two years, probably in less than a year, right? right? Um, but we, we just, you know, had fun building the technology and we just, you know, yeah. So, um, so six years, what kind of revenue level did you reach on a bootstrap basis in six years? Um, so I think we made it to um, roughly 8 million recognized revenue. Um, so product revenue and, and only a very small portion of, of services revenue. So it was, I, I, I would assume it's, it's quite significant in terms of revenue um, for doing a Series A. Our bootstrap company but, uh, is very significant. And what, um, how many customers was that? I would have to look it up. I would, I would assume a couple of hundred, maybe 400 or something. Um, All in Europe? Yeah. All the customers were in Europe? We started, um, so when we took the, we took on the funding, we had three offices already. Main office was in Berlin, um, serving the European countries, um, with at that point a large concentration in the German speaking countries and less of a penetration in, in the UK and France. 
Then the second office was in uh, California, a um, very small one, just a handful of people. Um, in, and the third one in Singapore. Um, so this helped us uh, also with a handful of people only. But this helped us tremendously, especially with, with large multinational accounts, because they usually want to see that you cover different time zones or that you cover different continents. So even, even though um, you know, the, the international offices, for them it took a long time to really contribute revenue, um, they were super important to tell the story and to be credible as a global player and to be able to tell companies, look, um, we, can, we can support you locally um, with, with, with local people. Um, this was this was really helpful. The international expansion, like aggressive expansion. Now we have eight offices around the world. Um, so having gone up from three to eight in the last two years, um, this has only happened recently, right? Um, and you know, we started developing a blueprint of how a market, a field organization, needs to look like for each one of those markets, um, and basically a rollout plan that that you know, tells us, you know, these are the things that you can achieve within the first three months, six months, nine months um, after you launch. So now it's much more of a predictable, it has become much more of a predictable process to, um, to set up shop in the different countries. And um, when you went in to raise money in, uh, with an $8 million uh, revenue run rate, what was the thinking? Why did you want to raise money? What was the driver? You could have continued to bootstrap at this point. You were well in uh, yeah, no, we well, were profitable as a company. So yeah, so it was it was really not um, it was not the main purpose to get additional cash um, to to fund the the growth because we were growing nicely out of our own cash flow at that point, especially with the hybrid model that we still had. So a combination of subscription revenue and um, one-off license revenue. Um, and the, the two main reasons were twofold. So one, at that point, we were an organization of roughly 75, 70, 75 people um, when we did the transaction. <clears throat> and we really had no clue how to run a company or how to build it further. So um, we had hired only very young people fresh out of university. Um, so you know, hardly anybody on the team had experience how to build a real um, software company, um, and we were always in, a, in an experimentation mode. Um, so we tried things; if they didn't work, we changed. But you know, certain things you simply don't need to reinvent, right? Certain things are out there, and you can simply take uh, a, sometimes a blueprint approach and simply say, well, you know, it has worked for 100 companies before. Why should we do it? Why should we have to do it completely differently? So, um, so this was reason number one, basically get, to get additional experience on board, a sparing partner who had done this, basically scaling from 100 to 500 employees or 100 to 1,000 employees, this range. So we were specifically looking at investors who had experience in doing that and also building out a global um, organization because we already felt that <clears throat> we had things pretty, you know, pretty things sorted out back home at headquarters. Um, but we were uh, we were having a hard time replicating the same thing in the international offices. So um, and it, and it's different if you all sit in one room on one building versus if you're distributed over the globe. Um, and we had you know simply no experience how to do that. The mechanisms to put in place, metrics, um, focus, um, we didn't have that. So this was reason number one. Reason number two was um, a little bit more uh, uh, mundane. Um, one of the co-founders, he wanted to um, exit and sell uh, a portion of his shares. 
um, and you know we wanted to um, allow him you know a reasonable valuation and, and given the revenue size and multiples and all of that um, you know nobody of us could ever do it through bank loans um, to, to, to pay him out so um, so doing doing an investment round was the right thing for for the uh, for the financial partner to take over um, some of those shares and and you you chose to work with summits right in the US to do this deal yeah yeah so we had a we had a long list of investors that we had looked at or who had interacted with us before um, most of them US based um, because they were simply in those um, deal or transaction sizes so we did a transaction of 31 million euros and very few European um, investors um, did those types of ticket sizes. For the U.S., this was very usual ticket size, nothing, you know, nothing, nothing extraordinary. A lot of funds who can do that and, and were willing to do that. And, uh, but Summit had always been our preferred partner throughout the whole process and, and in the time before. You know, just in terms of philosophy of their fund, um, the things that they were interested in, um, the, the way how they interacted with the companies, um, and, and also the personal relationship, right? So in the end, the fund is, is just the money in the background, but what, what is important for you on a day-to-day -day basis is the, the one or two or three people that you really interact with frequently. So, and it's, it's a marriage, right? So you better choose your partner wisely because you won't, you won't, um, you, know, you, you won't part anytime soon. It's a, it's a long time, it's a long time relationship. That transaction also was probably uh, one of the turning points of your more aggressive U.S. sales strategy, yes? Absolutely. We rebooted in the U.S. completely. So we, um, we expanded the team from three to almost 20 people within one or two months. Um, and we, uh, the main move we also did was we basically relocated the U.S. headquarters to Boston for multiple reasons, because our customer base was more East Coast, um, also the time difference to Europe, um, six hours instead of nine, um, and also flight distances to Europe. Um, this was the, you know, the, the, main, the main, main point for us. Uh, Boston is an expensive city, much like uh, New York or California, so there's not too big of a difference. But Boston is great because there's a lot of talent and experience in especially the enterprise software space. Um, so we have a lot of very, very um, respectable enterprise software companies just down the road. And it's great to tap into the, to the experience and the talent pool um, and to get good people on board. Um, so this is where Boston, Boston was, you know, turned out to be a very good choice for us as a location. And is uh, the competitive landscape different in the U.S. for you? Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. is the largest software market by far, right? So the EU combined is much smaller than the, U the U.S., right? And it's much more fragmented. In, in Europe, you have to go to every country individually. You can only sell to the French with a French person, right? In the U.S., it's much more homogeneous. So the result is that all of the good products are present in the U.S., right? Um, so whereas in other countries of this world, um, for example, we see that in Australia, it's a it's a great market, um, very mature. Um, you know, it, it it works great for us, but it's simply from a competitive landscape so different to the U.S. because nobody 
even bothers to, to care about the market, right? Rarely anybody has local people in the market. So if you make the commitment, now we have an office in Melbourne, if you make a commitment to the market, you can be so successful because um, you know you, you, you're simply not facing the competition. In the U.S., is different. In the U.S., everybody's there. Everybody who has a great product in any software category is present in the U.S. and sees it as their primary market. So you will you will have to cut through a lot of noise. Uh, people spend a lot of money on marketing and sales in the U.S even more so than in other countries of this world. Um, so from a customer acquisition point of view, we felt that it's, it's much less profitable than, than other countries. But if you can make it, the scale that you can reach is, of course, much more massive than anywhere else in the world. So if you really want to build a you know, $100 million revenue company or a billion-dollar revenue company, you can only do that if you are um, successful in the U.S. If you don't crack the U.S., it's almost impossible to get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, what has been challenging about scaling from Europe to the U.S.? <clears throat> well, you know, for us in particular, um, operating in different offices and and um, getting the right mix between doing things centrally and 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 therefore also efficiently because then you only have to do things once, right? Um, versus how much do you replicate in the different regions um, and adjust it to 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 the locals, um, you know. Uh, specific, uh, um, you know, specialties. The U.S. is very different than what we were used in Europe. In Europe, you can fly everywhere and you meet face to face a lot. All right. Um, so in, you know, within Germany, France, UK, you can get, you can go everywhere um, within a day trip. You fly there in the morning, you have your meetings during the day, and you fly back in the evening. In the U.S., this is not possible. So getting in the U.S., the, the, you really have to make a choice. You, you hardly ever address the U.S. as a whole, but you pick and choose. You say Greater Boston area, Greater New York area, um, maybe um, you know Southern California or whatever the, the pocket that you choose, and then you really focus there. Because unless you have a complete um, inside sales model, doing everything over the phone, um, then of course it doesn't matter. Um, you know, region doesn't matter. But as soon as you have to have some personal interaction at some point. The U.S. becomes really, really challenging, and you have to pick your battles very, very wisely um, because otherwise you're simply spread too thin. Um, you can't, you can't cover the whole U.S. with 20 people, right? You can't. You can cover it with 2,000 people, but um, but if you get started, you have to pick your battles very, very wisely and pick your pocket, your pick your niche. Um, where you can where you can create the necessary traction, and this this one we didn't have in Europe. In Europe, you say, you know, I'm interested in Sweden or I'm interested in the UK, and then it's it's the country as a whole rather than picking and choosing a, a particular pocket in it. So where are you today? Um, you raised Series A with eight million dollars in revenue. Where are you today? Well, we finished last year with north of 20 million um, AR. So um, we had we had some good growth in you know since we took on the investment, um, and you know we're continuing on the growth path. We have the feeling as a company that we're only learning how to run, 
um, and that we're only scratching the surface. So in, in all of the markets that we're active in, we feel that we're just, you know, we're barely starting. So this is a great feeling because if you're already at, you know, as I said, we finished last year north of 20 million. Um, and if you can, if you see that even with the same products, with the same approach, you can easily grow 10 times, 20 times um, in the markets that you're already present in without, you know, adding, adding anything to your portfolio, without adding any, any additional geography. Um, this is something that we have to, you know, execute on. Um, and then, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of ideas and, and other things that we could, you know, do as well. Um, so, so two questions. Um, one is, whom do you see in deals these days in Europe? Is it Software AG? And whom do you see in deals the most in the U.S.? Competitive so, yeah, so, so still globally our two main competitors are IBM and Software AG. So IBM also has a couple of products in our space, uh, mostly through acquisition. Um, and it's, of course, a great competitor to have because they run with completely different mechanics. They have reach like crazy, obviously, but they don't have the focus and they don't have the agility and they can't be, you know, smart on an account-by-account -account basis. Um, but on the other hand, they're, um, you know, they're just massive. So for, for us, it's a, it's a great playing ground because, um, you know, being a, 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 you know, a still rather small and nimble company, um, helps us create, create quite some traction in the market. Very good. So um, it's, a, it's a wonderful story of a, a European enterprise software company scaling globally. We are seeing several um, instances of this phenomenon. Actually, we've covered a number of companies uh, from Europe that have been able to scale to the U.S. and globally. So uh, congratulations.